The first single-dose vaccine is approved by the FDA to be rolled out in the United States. Minneapolis is set to use social media influencers to send out messages during the Derek Chauvin trial. And Virginia legalizes marijuana. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today, bright and early, rolling out on this Monday morning. We have been working hard to bring you this episode because this episode specifically is the best podcast that we have done yet. Bar none, hands down, you heard it here first. As always, you know that we're going to be looking at the left, we're going to be looking at the right, and we're going to be working diligently to try and split the difference to find that sweet truth that lies there in the middle, looking at the good and the bad and the ugly on both sides of the aisle and trying to parse through all the division that we see out there in our world to find a solid middle ground in politics today. So, if, and I know y'all are interested in that, but if you are interested in that, hop along with us as we hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, the first single dose vaccine was approved by the FDA made by Johnson and Johnson over the weekend. So this is pretty big news uh, because for the most part, as many of you know, all the vaccines that we have had up until this point have actually come out in two doses. You have to get your first dose, and then normally a couple of weeks later, you go and you get your second dose. Uh, Dr. Peter Marks, the director of the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, said, guided by our careful review of the science and data, we have determined that the vaccine's known potential benefits clearly outweigh its known potential risks. So this will be the first one that we've had so far that you can actually go and just get one shot and you should be completely vaccinated from the coronavirus. Um, obviously, that's great for a ton of different ways. First, the production on all of these vaccines can go down significantly. When you are having to produce two full vaccine doses, that doubles the amount of logistics that you have to be able to parse through. It doubles the amount of time it takes to actually be able to produce the vaccine that will keep you from getting the coronavirus. And, you know, it, you know in some ways... It's very, very good to be able to have, you know, something you can roll out to a significant amount of more people. You don't, you significantly lower the amount of people that go in and get one vaccination and then get coronavirus after that and maybe can't go get the second vaccination, whatever, whatever happens, happens, you know, but if you have one way easier, just makes sense. So let's hop in real quick and take a video and take a look at this video. This is done by uh, the Today Show. Uh, going through and looking at uh, this single-dose vaccine being rolled out by Johnson & Johnson. This morning, Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine is one step closer to receiving approval for emergency use after clearing a critical vote by an FDA advisory committee Friday. We need to get this vaccine out. I do believe that the evidence supports its safety and effectiveness. While Pfizer and Moderna may be more effective at preventing illness, J&J's one-shot vaccine offers strong protection against new variants and is 100% effective at preventing hospitalization and death. But as the nation prepares for the rollout of the third vaccine, a sobering update from the CDC despite weeks of declines in cases and hospitalizations. But the latest data suggests that these declines may be stalling, potentially leveling off at still a very high number. All right. So there you can see Johnson Johnson plans on 
uh, rolling out this vaccine. It looks like they already have a significant amount of doses that are ready to be rolled out. I believe they're planning on having sh- about 4 million start to ship out today uh, with the goal of sending out about 20 million more vaccines uh, by the end of the month. So production should increase significantly and obviously more people should be able to get the vaccine if you have multiple different vaccines that are being rolled out and especially if you have one that is a single dose. So uh, at this point, I think it's pretty much a race against time for what a lot of immunologists are, are coming and virologists are coming out and saying. The quicker that they can get the vaccines out to people, the better they can more they can ward off more virulent strains. Okay, that can come. We have seen multiple different strains that have come out across the world, notably ones in the United Kingdom and also in South Africa as well. That could, you know, potentially be more deadly. They continue, they could potentially be more contagious. And having a vaccine that hopefully is also good at competing against new strains that could come out is incredibly beneficial. Okay, uh, from what I have been able to see and what I've been able to research, uh, the single shot was shown to be eighty six percent effective at preventing severe disease in the United States. The shot was found to be seventy two percent effective at preventing moderate to severe disease, and in South Africa, where a much more worrisome variant, like I was talking about earlier, is circulating. That number was at about 64%. So, uh, there are currently new strains of the coronavirus being discovered, I mean, literally every single week, every single month, okay? And having a whole bunch of people that have been vaccinated. And hopefully that will help to ward off newer strains that could be potentially more contagious or more difficult on the immune system or on the body. If you have vaccines that you're able to get out to more people that can ward those types of strains off, the better off you are. Also, you have to think about the fact that if less people are getting or contracting the coronavirus, then it's a less opportunity for that virus to continue to mutate as it goes from host to host. The biggest problem that immunologists have is having to pair off and fight off these new strains that end up coming into being. This is, so this is the exact same reason why you have to get a flu shot every single year, or they tell you you should get a flu shot every year, right? It's the same thing. It's the same exact thing with this coronavirus as well. I think that a lot of the fears around this now are that we're going to end up having to roll out continuous coronavirus vaccines. And the reason why is as long as there are people that are not vaccinated from it, or as long as there are people that are still contracting the coronavirus, it still has opportunities to mutate. And as it has opportunities to mutate going from host to host to host, we never know what could end up coming down the line. And the current vaccinations that we have right now would not be able to fight off properly a new strain that was not around when the vaccines were made. So uh, the faster that we're able to get vaccines rolled out, the better. And if you have it done in a single dose, of course, you can get that vaccine rolled out much, much quicker. So this looks like it's going to be really big news. Hopefully, this helps a lot. Uh, I know that they've also been working on trying to get the vaccines that are currently in place that are double dose or two doses in order to be able to get receive full vaccination. Uh, they're trying to work on getting the transportation of those vaccines in a more efficient way. So like I talked about a couple months ago on the podcast, currently the vaccines that are being rolled out that were made by Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna have to be kept and stored at incredibly low temperatures, which obviously causes a ton of difficulty and a ton of problems in the supply chains around the country and around the world. If you have to be able to keep everything frozen at sub-zero temperatures for a very long periods of time, it takes a lot of 
a lot of nitrogen. It takes a whole lot of different chemicals and, and basically a whole bunch of dry ice to be able to package those things properly to be able to get them out to all of the far reaches of the world and have the vaccines, you know, still effective when they get there. I don't know about the temperature controls that are set under the single dose vaccine from Johnson and Johnson. I, it could be better. I'm not, I haven't, wasn't able to find a lot of information about that. I'm sure that as this vaccine is being distributed in and across various countries throughout the world, we will start to have more information that comes out about it. And we, you know, will thus then be able to kind of make a little bit more, a little bit better judgment calls as to what the efficacy rate is going to be of this vaccine and if it's going to actually be effective against new strains as well. Bottom line is it does look like though, coronavirus is slowly but surely starting to taper off, tamper down a bit, and a lot of that is because of the vaccine rollouts and the efforts there from governments across the world. So we'll have to see where this goes. Hopefully it is in a positive direction. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, the Derek Chauvin trial. So the city of Minneapolis is working to put together a wide array of resources to make sure that the Derek Chauvin trial does not turn into another iteration of what happened last year following the death of George Floyd and what kicked off months long of riots and protests in the streets of Minneapolis. They're looking at it from a number of different vantage points. So they're trying to, of course, ensure the safety of the residents of the city, the people that do decide to come and protest because there will be protests. There are already protests lined up up because the uh the actual trial and everything is set to start here in the next month and i think that what their concern is and what they're really worried about is that it could get very ugly very very quickly because you saw a lot of that happen last year during all the george floyd protests so let's go ahead hop in quick this is fox 9 minneapolis st paul uh I'm reporting on this now so let's hop in and take a quick look Minneapolis city leaders are telling property owners to have a plan in place in case of civil unrest during the upcoming Derek Chauvin murder trial. This week, the city is beefing up security around critical buildings, hoping to avoid the chaos and destruction that followed George Floyd's deadly arrest last May. Paul Bloom joining us now with more on the preparations underway. Paul. Randy and Amy, some of those critical buildings being fortified as we speak include police precinct headquarters in all corners of the city, and that's being done just in case they once again become targets of anger and outrage. The main focus is prevention. Prevention of property damage, arson, and looting. Minneapolis Police Department Deputy Chief Eric Fors promising the city will be fully prepared for whatever the upcoming murder trial of Derek Chauvin brings in the way of civil unrest and potential mayhem out in the streets. This week, fencing and fortification efforts ramping up downtown and really across the entire city, including police precincts, should they become targets as they did in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's deadly arrest. Okay, so... It's clear that officials in Minneapolis are very, very concerned that, that things could get out of hand, especially if it does, if this trial does not go the way that a lot of the protesters want for it to. So the jury is set to be picked starting on March 8th, and the trial is set to start with opening statements on March 29th. Derek Chauvin currently is being charged with second-degree murder and manslaughter. I won't get into specifically how I think the trial could actually end up playing out right now. I will probably wait to do that in a couple of weeks as more stuff kind of gets uh, put out and as to probably more analysis is done on the different arguments that will be presented from both sides. However, 
it is very, very clear that Minneapolis sees and recognizes that this trial could spark a lot of outrage if it does not go the way that some people want. So the first thing that they are doing is uh, fortifying various government buildings in and around the city. They are bringing in over 3,000 state police officers and National Guard troops will also be at the ready for when the trial kicks off. There are extensive new security measures around the Hennepin County Courthouse, City Hall, and Jail that includes three rings of concrete barriers, two topped by a chain-link fence with a trough in between filled with coils of razor wire. The innermost fence is topped with barbed wire and ground floor windows at all the buildings are boarded up. So in an 11 to 2 vote, the city council also approved allowing the Minneapolis Police Department to enter into mutual aid agreements with at least 14 other law enforcement agencies, basically trying their best to fortify the entire city for if and when large protests do devolve into violence or riots in much the same way that it did last year. So interestingly enough, Minneapolis seems to be moving towards more police and more security after spending most of the summer last summer uh, disbanding the police and talking about defunding the police completely. Obviously, that did not go very well. I actually talked about that on one of the podcasts about how the defund the police movement has kind of in a lot of different cities stripped police departments of the resources that they need in order to be able to keep the community safe. It did not work out well. Who could have called that? Uh, they've realized they probably should walk a lot of that policy back and they're kind of going in the polar opposite direction, which obviously is going to be significantly more beneficial for the residents of the city and keeping them safe if protests evolve to riot. So the next thing that they'll be doing, and this is, I think, more of where our story centers around a bit today, is uh, actually a bit more on the social side. Very interestingly, the city council approved a $1 million communications and de-escalation plan. That includes paying six social media influencers to distribute state-approved messages about the trial that is going on. The goal will be to specifically target black, Native American, Somali, Hmong, and Latinx communities, in their words. The effort is meant to dispel information and avoid unrest that was very similar to what was sparked in Floyd's death last year, including the violence and the looting. So the city of Minneapolis, in a statement, said, quote, its goal is to increase access to information to communities that do not typically follow mainstream news sources or city communication channels and or who do not consume information in English. It is also important to create more two-way communication between the city and its communities. So the city communication strategy is called a joint information system, and it aims to, quote, offer offer enhanced community services during the trial to keep people more informed and safe, especially non-English and black indigenous people of color, communities and small businesses that do not rely on traditional media. So the social media influencers will basically be there to send out important messages to their followers because the city's worried that a large portion of the black and minority communities don't follow city communications or they're not in an opportunity and I guess and I had the opportunity to be able to hear or listen to those by getting the influencers and have a large following of black and minority uh, people that are there specifically in and around Minneapolis and then outside of Minneapolis as well to send out messages about the trial. Their hope is that people will get the messages more quickly and it will keep a lot more bad stuff from happening. Incredibly interesting how this is honestly the first time that I've been able to see or that I can think of where social media is being put to use by a government entity, 
not using the government entity's designated channel, but instead hiring on social media influencers with a very, very large following of specific target audience that the government wants to be able to reach very, very specifically, okay? They are basically employing people with a large or wide social media outreach to get in front of the narrative and to control the communication that is being put out. It will be a very interesting litmus test to see how and if this type of thing works. It is somewhat disconcerting in a couple of ways, okay? There are people on the right that are saying, okay, this should be good because the last thing that we need is more rioting because that was absolutely terrible last year. The left, however... I think feels somewhat apprehensive, maybe is the best way to put it. There are a lot of social advocates there uh, in Minneapolis that are very worried that this is actually going to allow the government to control the narrative that is being pushed out in a way that wouldn't be beneficial for actual information getting out about the trial if it's not something that the federal government or the state government there would want to be out. So on one hand, I understand very much so the concern that the city of Minneapolis has, especially because they don't, they don't control how the trial is going to play out, okay? Convicting someone of manslaughter and second-degree murder is not an easy task. It doesn't matter how outraged you are. It doesn't matter how egregious the video appeared, the full 8 minutes and 46 seconds of it. Uh, all of it was absolutely horrible. But convicting someone of second-degree murder is a very, very difficult and slippery process, and the city of Minneapolis realizes they have zero control over it. It is all up to the jury that is in that room, the lawyers that are representing Derek Chauvin, and the prosecutors that are on the case as well. If they are able to convince the jurors in a proper way that he needs to be convicted, then hopefully, obviously, he will be convicted. However, it's difficult for that to happen. So I understand why the city of Minneapolis is concerned and why they're going, taking the steps that they need to be taking in order to be able to reach people that they know would it be the ones that were in the streets protesting because it was a black man that was killed, right? However, whenever the government steps in and tries to control a narrative or tries to have their hand in or influence what is happening, I'll be honest, it makes me a little bit worried. It does. It makes me nervous. And it's because the government paying social media influencers to say a certain thing to a certain group of people in order to be able to get them information that they would want them to have in a lot of ways is going to change the mind and change the perspective of the people that they're trying to reach in a very, very targeted way. All of the messages that are going to be put out through these influencers will have to be approved by the city. The government will have control of exactly what they're saying, as opposed to independent reporting through these social media influencers, which there, of course, will be completely independent reporting as well. There are only six social media influencers that they're doing this with, so there will be plenty of other social media influencers that can say whatever it is that they want. But it goes to show how incredibly powerful of a tool social media has become and how many people now go to social media in order to get their news and information. The city of Minneapolis realizes that there are large swaths of the community they're living in the city that get the vast majority of their information from people that they follow on Twitter, on Facebook, on you know Instagram, whatever it may be as opposed to actually getting their news from local news stations or getting their news directly from the city officials, which is, you know, that's tough. You ha If you want to be able to communicate a message to those people, you have to be creative in the way that you do it. 
for them, they've decided to go the social media influencer route. So it's going to be interesting to see if this goes well, if they feel like they're able to get information out properly to the people that they need to get the information to, if they're able to quell a lot of the dissension, a lot of the distrust that is there, and there aren't a significant amount of riots that are happening there in Minneapolis throughout the trial. I think they're going to look at it as a success, and I think you will start to see a lot more companies, a lot more even government entities and municipalities start to go this route of using social media influencers in order to be able to control a specific narrative that they want to be controlled. Some of it I can understand is good, but there's just a part of me that, man, whenever the government's stepping in and trying to control a narrative, that freaks me out just a little bit, I'll be honest. But it will be interesting as the trial gets kicked off. We, of course, are going to cover it here on the podcast. We're going to try and look at both sides as much as we can kind of parse through the different arguments and the different stuff that have happened. But it will also be, I think I'm going to have my eye on this story a bit too, because it will be interesting to see how the government uses stuff like this going forward as well. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and our, our last story, story number three. So for our third story, Virginia votes to legalize marijuana. So Virginia becomes the 16th state to legalize marijuana over the weekend. There, the Virginia uh, House of Representatives passed the measure in a 48 to 43 vote, and the Senate approved it in a 20 to 19 vote. Not a single Republican voted for the bill in either chamber, which we will talk a bit about uh, later on. But Sales will not start fully until January 1st of 2024. That is also when full legalization will be enacted as well. Uh, Residents at that point in time will be able to possess up to an ounce of marijuana, which is a lot of marijuana and grow up to four plants at their house as well. Until then, possession will just be a $25 fine. So it does look like they're completely decriminalizing marijuana currently. And then once January 2024 hits, you'll be able to open up a dispensary. You'll be able to sell it. They'll be able to tax it. And that's pretty much why a lot of it's being passed because they want the taxes. Um, But the most interesting part about this bill is actually how many of the Democrats there in Virginia have said that this is more of a racial justice bill as and not just a marijuana legalization bill. The bill sets a 21% excise tax on marijuana and then allows municipalities within Virginia to add an additional 3% tax on retailers Uh, on top of the existing sales tax. So it's going to be taxed very, very heavily. This is expected to bring in, within the first year or so, about $200 million of tax revenue to the state, which has to be used in a very, very specific fashion. So first, 40% has to go to pre-K education. 35% has to go to the new cannabis equity reinvestment fund, which we will talk a bit about in a second. 25% goes to substance use disorder treatment programs, and then 5% goes to other public health initiatives. This was the biggest sticking point for the Republicans and legislature. It was around the social justice initiatives that are basically being done to help people that have been disproportionately affected by the current marijuana laws that are in place. So many of the Democrats were basically saying this. Marijuana laws have disproportionately, by a large measure, affected black and minority communities, specifically black communities, in all of the different studies that they did. So uh, the legislation was based on two extensive studies on the issue. One was a report from the current governor's administration, and then the second was another nonpartisan report from the Joint Legislative Audit and Review Committee. These reports basically found 
that black communities were from 2010 to 2019, they quote, the average arrest rate of black individuals for marijuana possession was three and a half times higher than the arrest rate for white individuals and significantly higher than arrest rates for other racial or ethnic groups. Black individuals were also convicted at a much higher rate, 3.9 times higher than white individuals. So Democrats came in and they were like, based on the findings in this report, And these two reports, we want to be able to enact legislation around marijuana that will actually benefit black people and minority people that have been affected more perversely by the current marijuana legislation. So the that new cannabis equity reinvestment fund will be specifically geared towards helping black individuals in their you know, getting out of jail and uh, getting finding it and getting jobs. It will also be for helping black and Latino and minority individuals that want to open up some sort of dispensary or basically open up a business that would be able to make profits from the newly legalized marijuana business to be able to do it. This was the sticking point that a lot of Republicans said that this type of legislation specifically was not something that they would vote for. They were like, I think one of the Republicans was quoted as saying that um, this is, you know, we don't have this for any other substances, right? We don't have it for alcohol. We don't have it for tobacco in any type of way. Why would we just go in and give more money specifically to black people because it's a marijuana bill? That doesn't make sense. Black people and white people should have just as much of the same opportunity to be able to open up dispensaries as they can. And there's no reason why black people should have a, you know, have a a better opportunity at getting money from the government or better approval processes for getting dispensaries or other type of for-profit businesses in the marijuana industry. Really interesting. So uh, I am somewhat torn on this because I personally uh, do not love and I'm not a huge fan of... uh, and this may sound a bit controversial, but a lot of the affirmative action type of laws that are rolled out in order to be able to benefit black communities, because I do think in some ways it actually didn't, it actually is a detriment to black communities. That's an incredibly nuanced conversation. I don't have time to actually talk through the entirety of that argument right now, but I am normally very weary of, we don't want to be racist. So we're going to cater to one race more because oftentimes what ends up happening is You end up disproportionately affecting other races that just aren't black, right? And that's not good. However, specifically with this marijuana legislation, it is 100% factual that black people have been disproportionately affected by the incredibly large war on drugs that has been around for the past 40 to 50 years, and especially marijuana. There are people that are in jail for years and years for possession of marijuana or selling marijuana or smoking weed. It is absolutely unbelievable. And it is a fact, those studies are not lying when they say that black people are not only arrested at a higher rate, but they are also convicted at a higher rate for any and all types of marijuana-related offenses or crimes. That's it's just true, okay? And if you want to be able to repair that in some way or another, a great way to do it is allowing those people then to be able to go and make money off of the marijuana industry that I'm sure will absolutely explode in Virginia come 2024 once it actually gets rolled out. I don't know all of the specific intricacies of the bill. 
Um, at this point in time, I read through a good portion of it. It does seem like something that I think could be incredibly beneficial. Um, how they parse through what actually is given out, the what is handed out in the new cannabis equity reinvestment fund that is going to be created. That's going to be a bit up for debate. I'm sure that the governor there at Northam in Virginia also is probably going to send it back with some a couple tweaks and edits that he wants. Many are expecting him actually to want to push the timeline back for legalization back to even into 2022 so that it happens much quicker as opposed to waiting for a couple of years for it to happen. But we're going to have to see. It's a very, very interesting case in Virginia because uh, it's the first state in the South, really, that has voted to actually legalize it. And it's only the third state in the country that has legalized it through a legislative process. Every other state actually did it through a popular vote. Very interesting. So um, I think the vast majority of states, if they actually put something on a ballot for legalization of cannabis, it would pass with flying colors because it really is a bipartisan. Most people agree bipartisanly that they don't care if marijuana is legal or not. So we'll have to see all this plays out. Over the next couple of years, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how marijuana legislation starts to change now that a, a, a state in the South, even though probably one of the more progressive states in the South, has actually legalized pot and you know, we'll have to kind of see where it goes from here. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our last story of the day. Let's hop on in to the last segment and honestly, probably my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile today is actually a new album from, I guess he's really more a friend of a friend, but uh, he married one of uh, one of my best friends um, and he created a new album. His name is Zane Vickery and the album is Breezewood. So I actually got to listen through it and it's pretty cool because I know the guy and, you know, met him, talked to him a decent bit and uh, super interesting guy. And he came out with this album, Breezewood, uh, I think... Uh, not too long ago, maybe like a couple months or a couple months ago. And I was able to listen through the entire thing over this past weekend while we were traveling back from a trip. And it is a very good album, highly recommend it. So if you want to go and check out that album, it's on Spotify, probably the easiest place to be able to get it. Like I said, his name is Zane Vickery. That's spelled V-I-C-K-E-R-Y. And the title of the album is Breezewood. There's some really good songs on there. Honestly, I feel like he poured his heart into it and it was really, really cool to kind of listen through. Um, my buddy, uh, my buddy Jonathan talking through uh, a lot of the different stuff that Zane uh, did in order to be able to get this album out and how hard he worked on it. So definitely big, big props to him. And it's a great album. You should definitely go give it a listen if you get the chance. So with all of that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you for stopping in and for checking us out. As always, y'all remember to check me out on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference. And of course, my website as well at SplitTheDifference.com. We've got a lot of great and awesome content coming out to you here soon. We actually have a new guest episode that will be rolling out tomorrow. So and prepare to be blown away by great conversation yet again and enjoy listening through that episode. As always, y'all give me likes and subscribes, all the thumbs up that you can because that helps me a ton. And remember, we're going to do our best to be level-headed. We're always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.